Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Jamie Alexander, the founding director of Drawdown Labs. Drawdown Labs is Project Drawdown's private sector testing ground for accelerating the scaling of climate solutions quickly, safely, and equitably. Now, I was excited for this one. Jamie has been a very active member of the MCJ community. She wrote a Community Voices piece for our newsletter recently. She's on the Climate Change Makers Advisory Board, which my partner Cody helped to get off the ground. And she most recently was at Ceres before going to Drawdown. And Mindy Lubber, the head of Ceres, came on the show a while back. And that seems like a wonderful organization. At any rate, we cover a lot in this episode, including, of course, Jamie's path and how she came to be doing the work that she's doing. But it was also interesting to get into some of the levers for change she thought were most impactful when she started doing this work and how those views have evolved and why those views have evolved over the years that she's been doing what she does. And we also, of course, talk about Drawdown Labs and their approach, their philosophy for change, and also some examples of some of the member companies that work with Drawdown Labs. Where the discussion gets really interesting is talking about some of the issues with members not necessarily being on board for the most impactful things for progress and how Jamie has handled that. And we talk about some of the double standards in people working on climate, some of the infighting that occurs, some of the tensions and chicken and egg scenarios. And we actually get into a, a pretty hearty debate at different points during the discussion. But at the end of the day, 
sometimes a little bit of fireworks is how progress happens. And I really left this conversation feeling, one, that Jamie and I are, are extremely mission aligned, but two, some of these things, they're just not obvious. There is no easy answer. There's something called nuance, which doesn't necessarily manifest well on someplace like Twitter in 140 or, or 200 characters, but in a long-form discussion like this can actually get teased out quite nicely. At any rate, great discussion, and I hope you enjoy it. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jason. Great to be with you. Great to have you. And as we talked about a little before recording, you've been all over the place in terms of being an active member of the MCJ community, and you wrote a Community Voices piece, and you're, of course, involved with climate change makers, as is my partner, Cody, and you've just been everywhere, yet somehow we've not crossed paths live before. So such an honor to finally meet you and to have you on the show. The honor is mine, Jason. I've been a, a fan of yours for a long time, and this feels like a long overdue conversation. I agree. Well, jumping right into it, what is Drawdown Labs? Great opening question. Yeah, so Drawdown Labs is it's sort of the experimentation hub, I would say, of of broader Project Drawdown. Project Drawdown is a is a nonprofit organization that really exists in order to research, aggregate, and then communicate to the world what the biggest solutions to the climate crisis are. And so we've been doing that for several years now. We published our New York Times bestselling book, Drawdown, back in 2017. But we really didn't see a huge amount of, you know, climate solutions scaling in the world much more quickly after we published that book. We think, you know, there was a change in awareness. There was a lot of like sort of conversation about it. But we really wanted to, after we published that book, look at how could we use that data to help inform some of the biggest actors and biggest movers in society and kind of get off the sidelines and, you know, move beyond just being a research organization into, into an organization that actually, you know, takes action. So Drawdown Labs was launched sort of with that purpose to go from the, you know, what the nouns, what are the solutions to climate change into the verbs, like how do we scale them in the world quickly, safely and equitably. So my program, you know, our theory of change is that the big actors in society that can move things quickly enough are corporations, investors and philanthropies, because we need to change corporate behavior. We need to get capital to climate solutions, you know, in strategic ways. And philanthropies and, and private capital are, are huge leverage points there. Yeah. So Drawdown Labs works with those three audiences to kind of use the resources and clout influence that they have at the policy level, at the investment level, at the corporate behavior level, at the employee level, to try to just get climate solutions deployed, scaling in the world as fast as humanly possible. And I, I researched a bit on your background before getting to Drawdown Labs, and it seems like you've done some incredibly interesting work that didn't have to do with climate. So maybe talk a bit about your personal journey and also when climate started showing up on the radar, both as an issue that you care about, but also an issue that you're actually applying in your professional pursuits. Yeah, thanks for making that that observation. I mean, I started my career thinking that, you know, I wanted to work in health. Global health was my passion. And I studied behavior change, communication, and public health, and ended up working in the federal government doing foreign aid work, you know, kind of 
educating people around using malaria bed nets or taking their HIV AIDS medication or, you know, working on public health issues. And so as part of that work, I lived in a lot of different parts of the world, but Bangladesh was my first, my first post in 2009. And it was there that I, you know, I was there working in rural clinics on malaria, but the place is flooding, you know, more and more every year. And in the short time that I lived there, which was less than two years, it was just so clear to me that Bangladeshi people knew that climate change was a huge issue, that the glacier up above them was melting and flooding them worse and worse every year. And that, you know, all these other things that we were working on, malaria, AIDS, you know, food insecurity, these things all had climate change in that place was a foundational issue. And if we didn't address that, all these other things that we care about so deeply, our gains there are not going to be able to be sustainable unless we address climate change. And for a place like Bangladesh, that is an existential problem. And I was there when there was a big factory collapse, actually, where a lot of U.S. companies had outsourced the production of their clothes. Nike had was manufacturing goods in, the, in this factory that ended up collapsing. It was called the Rana Plaza. And it killed about a thousand Bangladeshi people. So I had this experience of like working with, you know, seeing seeing the effects of climate change as a foundational root issue, seeing the corporate influence, especially U.S. companies, you know, influence in a place like Bangladesh and this the social responsibility that, you know, that that companies have. And that's sort of where I decided to make my pivot toward looking at how business can be a force for good and at the same time pivoting to to want to focus specifically on climate change. But it was like, I mean, the reason that I love your community so much is that it was not an easy or straightforward transition to move from like public health into climate change, even though they're so interrelated. And I felt like I had a decent, you know, decent amount of work experience. It was very, I mean, I had to like work for free for a year and, you know, volunteer for a year. And luckily I was able to to do that and make ends meet. Yeah, it's become my passion that like we should not have to compete. <laughs> we should not have to like, it shouldn't be hard to work on climate change. We need everyone. We need everyone's skill sets. This should be like something that everyone is, is welcomed into. And I think that's what you're doing with this community. And when you first realized and felt compelled to turn your attention to working on climate, where did you start? Did you start by learning? Did you start by doing? You mentioned volunteering. It'd be interesting just to understand what that first step or two looked like, and then how things evolved from there. So I started within the context of my of the job I had at the time. So and that was working, you know, that was working overseas. So wherever I was, whether that was in Bangladesh or Tanzania or South Africa, I tried to use the current work I was doing to learn more about climate change and to learn more about how it intersected with climate change. And I just kept on you know, uncovering that everywhere I looked, it was related to climate change. And local people knew it and local people knew their solutions and their challenges. And it didn't seem like anyone was really listening. So I started by just trying to kind of do investigative journalism, I guess, as part of that, as part of like my job at the time. And then when it was clear that I, I you know, at the time, I just, you know, I, I think I, I kind of decided to move away from the federal government and wanted to, you know, really work full time on, on climate change. And so 
so yeah, I kind of took what I learned and went to work for a very small nonprofit for a little while. That's actually an amazing cultural revitalization nonprofit that works with indigenous groups in California called the Cultural Conservancy. Worked with them for a while and did land revitalization, cultural re- revitalization, indigenous land management practices and learned a lot from that experience. And then, yeah, and then after kind of my work was was finished with them, that's when I really took some time, you know, off to learn specifically about climate change, volunteer for a while, and then and then moved into a, a very specific, specifically climate change focused role. And you, you talked about how one of the things you love about our community is that it shouldn't be so hard to transition into climate. Why do you think it is that it's so difficult? What is it that makes it so difficult to transition? I think that's where, I mean, I think we started out when sustainability became a job function, you know, it started out like any other one does where, you know, you needed to have certain, we thought that you needed certain credentials, right? I think it started as like, oh, you need to, you know, what are the biggest issues in terms of climate change? You need to understand renewable energy, or you need to understand policy, or you need to understand these very, very wonky, important, but really like, wonky topics. And so I think it started out with it being sort of a discipline like accounting or law or medicine, you know, where like you needed to have a have a certain discipline or a certain awareness or education level or network to be able to get a job. And I think that the reason that we did that, I think, as a community is because we saw climate change as an issue, right, as one isolated issue and I think the change that we've made in awareness as a world is now we know that it's it's not an issue. It's It underpins literally everything. Everything that we know and love rests upon our stable planet. So I think the shift now that we've made is like, oh, well, if if everything depends upon it and everything is like interrelated with it, then therefore everyone must, you know, every every part of society needs to be transformed. So there must be a role for everyone. But I think we started off thinking of it like as a as an issue. And that's why it was so hard to get jobs because there were so few of them and there were so few people qualified for it. And thank God, I think now like the the floodgates have been burst wide open and people are finding their ways to contribute to it from wherever we are, which is really what the world needs. And when you were first starting to transition, you mentioned that you were drawn to corporations and their ability to bring about outsized change. I'd love to understand a little more what it was that led you to corporations and what type of role you saw them or see them having in the process. And I I distinguish between the two in case your views have changed from when you first came into today. Very insightful question. I definitely think my views have changed since I came into this work. And that's probably because the climate crisis has accelerated so much. And we've seen such little, we haven't met the crisis at the level we need to yet. But yeah, I think I had that experience of living in Bangladesh and seeing corporate influence over in a place like Dhaka, Bangladesh, a factory collapse and kill a thousand people, outsource labor. And I saw like this, this is a this is a really an issue. This and you know, these companies that we think of as, you know, just brand names have these ripple effects in places of the world and very real impacts on on people's lives. And and I guess at the same time, seeing the gravity and the urgency and the expansiveness of the climate crisis and realizing we need to figure out some big 
big ways to, to take action. And like it or not, in our current economic system, large corporations are huge and influential actors. I think I said earlier, like leverage, you know, the power of business, like leveraging a brand, the power of business to do good. I kind of feel like it's actually how can we like exploit the resources and influence and clout of businesses and sort of use the tentacles that they have in every aspect of society, use it for positive, you know, climate ends. I guess that's sort of how I see things. I think like we need to just take and exploit the biggest and most systemic underpinning systems in the world and use them to accelerate climate action. But I guess, I mean, I do think, you know, in my in my heart of hearts, I probably this question keeps me up at night. Are capitalism and climate change compatible? It, like, can we live on a finite planet with, you know, a focus on quarterly returns? And those are questions I, you know, I don't have the answer to. But I think, you know, the more I work on this issue, the more I'm convinced that we don't have time to completely dismantle our economic system. And therefore, we need to like use the big entities with influence, try to use them to accelerate, accelerate change. And you you mentioned that your views have changed quite a bit since you entered the field. What are some of the biggest ways that your views have changed? So what's different now from when you came in of note? One of the biggest ones I would say is that, you know, I came into this thinking we need to make the business case for companies and why they should take action on climate change, show that it's good for their bottom line or show that it's good for the business. I don't think that's necessarily been super successful. And I guess what goes along with that is I guess I thought executives within companies, they're going to make the right decision eventually if we change their minds, if we like get the right data and the right information in front of them, they'll change their minds and they'll they'll make good decisions for a livable future. And I I don't necessarily think that that is the way that we're going to make change. You know, I've been trying that angle, making the business case to executives inside companies for a very long time. And I haven't seen, you know, the kind of change or the kind of like bold, courageous decision making that I think is necessary. And so I've come to believe that it's actually employees within within the business who are not tied to shareholders, who are not tied to have to show, you know, quarterly returns, who have a moral, you know, a clarity on the on the climate issue and who can push from the inside, who can support the company from the inside who can hold them accountable. To me, that's that's the major, major pivot that I've made in my sort of my approach to all of this and my, my philosophy. So could you say bottoms up versus top down? Yeah, that's a good way to say it. Yeah. Grassroots versus grass tops. And you, you talked about how you thought that presenting a business case and showing how it would benefit them to move in this direction would be persuasive and was not. Why do you think that was? Do you think it's that the business case itself wasn't compelling or was it something else? The business case, it makes itself. I think the problem is that the business case is made over a longer term than executives are able to make decisions on. So, you know, you could make like a a business case for, oh, you'll see the return on investment. If you make this decision around like renewable energy and all of your factories or something, you'll see... You know, we could show them you'll see a return on investment in 10 years or something. Yeah, I'm just making this up. But the inability to make decisions on a longer term 
time horizon is the problem, in my opinion. You could tell them like your supply chain, your factory in Bangladesh is going to be underwater in 15 years, according to these climate models. But that isn't reason enough. And, you know, that's that doesn't do much for their investors. And I think that's that's the problem is that the the time horizons, even though they're so short with climate change, they're not short enough to meet, you know, a focus on quarter on like a relentless focus on quarterly returns. So I think that to me, that's the issue is being able to be able to show in in like the time horizons that capitalism operates under, which is like, you know, quarters. It's hard to show climate impact over quarters. And it sounds like if I'm hearing right, that when you had that revelation that maybe pushing on this at the executive level, given the longer time horizons, just wasn't going to compel action when executives are trapped in the quarter by quarter framework that you made the decision to pivot and focus more bottoms up on employees. Do you have a sense of what it would take to get executives to act more boldly, either at the personal level or systemically to change? And if so, it'd be great to understand what that is and also how viable it would be to bring that about since since I can only assume that either you don't have that sense or that you have that sense and it just wasn't viable given that you've sounds like shifted gears to focusing on employees. Yeah, I think there's two things. So one, I think the business case is important, but it's it's only a part of the puzzle. So I actually worked with a climate psychologist back when I was sort of trying to like crack this nut uh, about five years ago and really like had close access to executives was really trying to like get more companies to set science-based targets, you know, emissions reductions targets. Dr. Lertzman came on the show. I don't know if that's who you worked with. It is Dr. Lertzman. Well, that's how small the climate landscape is, that it's like you say climate psychologist and then we just know the same one. Oh, that one? That that one, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. She, I mean, she's been a mentor of mine for a long time. And I I went to her and I was like, I have this access to, you know, to decision makers and I just can't get through. Like, I don't know, you know, it feels so obvious to me. Like, you know, you're alive in the world. You live in California. You're seeing the wildfires. You're feeling the wildfire smoke in your lungs. You have children. You're, you know, on and on. And I was like, and and I'm making the business case right in front of you. And I'm giving you this, like, on a silver platter, what you should do. And they're not doing it. And, And she said to me, just try this for one month. Just try this one strategy. Every meeting that you have with a high-level business person over the next month, start the conversation with, this is so freaking hard. Like, this is the hardest topic there is to work on. This is all the marbles. You know, this is like, start the conversation at a level, you know, acknowledging the gravity of what we were there to talk about, acknowledging that it was complex and emotional and, you know, really, really serious. And her hypothesis was starting not from like, we're here to talk about, you know, line items in your budget and how to like, you know, how to transition to renewable energy in your data centers, but starting from like more of an emotional standpoint. And I did that actually, the very first meeting I did that with was an executive at Uber. And 
he and I cried together in his in his office. He has kids. And I mean, we ended up having an incredible relationship, work together on their emissions reductions targets. And he like led that, pro- you know, I mean, he was, yeah, just an incredible ally for that. And I, I credit Renee with really like helping us kind of break through. This isn't just about the business case. This is not just about the bottom line. This is about life and connecting with people, I think, in a human way is a big part of the story, too. And we we oftentimes, I think, throw that aside when we go to work. So anyway, so that's just like an anecdote about, I think we do need to make the business case, but it's not the only thing there is to make because we're all also human beings and live on this amazing planet together. So I think bringing that into it is also important. And so in your work at Drawdown Labs, Maybe talk a bit about how you're engaging there. You mentioned corporations, you mentioned philanthropy, and you mentioned investment. How are you engaging across and how are you engaging with corporations specifically given what we just discussed? Our kind of hypothesis when I launched Drawdown Labs was the question I was trying to answer and the question that I still grapple with is, will change happen within like the business category, will change happen by small like climate tech startups that like leapfrog these big, big incumbents, you know, in their sectors and just show like show the rest of the world what true climate leadership looks like. Is that how change will happen the fastest by like startups that have climate in their DNA? Or will it happen by these big, you know, multinational corporations that pivot quickly? And so I think the jury's for me, the jury's still out, like, but we I think both obviously are necessary. So we launched Drawdown Labs with both large corporations like General Mills and Netflix and Google and LinkedIn, and some smaller kind of like climate tech focused companies. So companies like Impossible Foods or Lime Bikes, who really like exist in order to scale a climate solution. So we work with both and we we really look at like, what are all the ways that companies can influence climate change for the better? And that's, that goes way beyond just emissions, you know, that looks at emissions, but also how are they using their clout politically to pass climate policy? How are they using their investments and like their employees 401ks? How are they shifting those to, you know, away from investing in fossil fuels? And how are they looking at, you know, pushing their insurance companies and asset managers? Um, How are they looking at, you know, transforming their business models from one that's focused on whatever it's focused on to one that is actually focused on scaling climate solutions? So we look at like, what are more, I won't say all because I think there's more that we haven't identified yet. But what are some of some new ways we can identify that businesses can help accelerate climate action in the world? And then we work with our partners to help exemplify that. So, you know, examples of that are like Netflix using their storytelling superpower to scale climate related messaging in the world or Google, you know, greening the electrical grid 24 seven their 24 seven carbon free energy commitment where they, you know, they're committed to greening the electrical grid everywhere they operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Or it's like LinkedIn helping them identify green jobs on their platform. Like if someone wants to like get a job doing something climate related, you know, helping them like LinkedIn now has a taxonomy and they're using their platform to help accelerate climate jobs. 
So we work with our partners on things like that, getting our business partners to advocate for climate policy, helping them look at shifting their investments, the cash they have on hand and their investments, their finances. And then with investors, we really, you know, I think there's a big need in the investment community to better understand where the gaps are. There's a lot of interest you know, on the part of investors in in financing climate solutions. But there's not a whole lot of scientific guidance, I would say, around what climate solutions are most in need of financing. You know, is there a sequencing? Should we finance the low-hanging fruit first? As our executive director, John Foley, says, you know, matching the dollars to the gigatons, trying to figure out, like, how do we get capital to the right climate solutions on the right time horizons? So that's what we're doing now with our, you know, with our kind of investor partners and and philanthropic partners. And yeah, we haven't really started, just to answer your second question, we haven't started looking at the interplay between them. I did that a bit in my in my last role at Series, looking at like how you know investors can help push companies faster. But we haven't started looking at that yet. We just launched our our investment work stream a few months ago. So we're very in early days on that front. And I mean, you at Trotdown know better than most that we, you know, if we, if we don't know all of what we need to do, we know most of, of what we need to do from a science and technology standpoint, yet as we discussed earlier in this discussion, we're moving way slower than we should to hit the targets we need to in the timeframes that we need to. I believe I've heard several folks from Drawdown you know, say it, it's not a technology problem. One, did I hear, hear that right? And, and if it isn't a technology problem, what kind of problem is it? Like, why aren't we moving faster? And is there any hope that we will? I would say yeah, it's not a technology problem. We do, as you said, we have the solutions in hand today, not in, not in a laboratory, not in like a an incubator somewhere, but scale like already in the world today, happening in the world. Those solutions are sufficient to limit warming to 1.5 C. We just need to get financing in place to scale them and policy in place to scale them. It's not a technology problem, but technology would help all of it scale faster. Like we don't necessarily need, we need technology to help when we eventually will have to rely on carbon capture and direct air capture. We will eventually need to remove carbon, but that shouldn't be our focus right now. Our, Our focus should be on stopping the bleeding, right? Like reducing and avoiding the emissions that are going into the air every second of every day. We need to stop the bleeding there and, you know, simultaneously invest in improving the ways that we can in the future get carbon out of the atmosphere because we'll need to do both. But it's not a technology problem, although technology can help these existing solutions scale faster. So why, you know, why they're not scaling fast enough? I think there's There's, I mean, that's a huge question. I mean, we, you know, it's a policy problem. It's a problem of financing. It's a problem of collective action on a massive scale that, you know, I mean, I sometimes fear that, that we've like shifted, you know, the, the climate movement started being super focused on individual action, right? Like recycling and changing light bulbs. And then it was like, then it felt like the whole movement shifted to say, no, 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 you know, we don't need like individual action is not where we should focus. You shouldn't feel guilty. We need to focus only on systems change, which is great. But we also still do need individual action. Well, that is ultimately, you know, an important part of the puzzle. So I think I worry that we 
we're so focused now on systems change that we're sort of absolving ourselves of doing what needs to be done in our own lives and with our with the leverage that we each have. So I think I mean, I guess the Again, coming back to, you know, how I why I think employees are are so important is that I've come to feel that our existing leaders are not up to the task of getting what done what needs to be done. You know, we saw that in Congress this past year with Build Back Better, where one or two human beings can completely sideline a massive federal climate policy package that would have been really instrumental and, you know, in getting investment to climate solutions through the Build Back Better Act. That was like, you know, a handful of in, of human beings who were able to single-handedly, like, sideline that package of climate investments. So I think, you know, part of what, what makes me so passionate about employee power is that I think we need, like, a wider, a wider distribution of power, of people who can make decisions, who can influence decision-making, who see the issue clearly. And that's to me, you know, when employees who see the issue more clearly can help move their companies faster. That's where I have optimism about that movement is really building a lot right now. It seems that some longtime climate people and organizations, and I would certainly put Drawdown in this camp, philosophically almost feel like, you know, here's the things that matter. And then all these other things are noise and shining lights in places and taking our eye off the ball and distracting. And so more isn't necessarily better. We need to do less, but put more wood behind the the things we do. So I have a follow-up, but I'm just going to stop. Do you agree so far? Any any disagreement that that's the drawdown perspective? The drawdown perspective is is yes and, you know, we've identified- Is that true? Is that true? I mean, because I already heard you say that we shouldn't do carbon removal today, like five minutes ago. Oh, I didn't say we shouldn't do carbon removal. I said we should invest in research around it, but our focus should be on reducing and avoiding emissions. And that's looking at our buildings, our aggregate. That's not just looking at fossil fuels. It's looking at buildings, agriculture, transportation, you know, energy efficiency. You know, that's looking across at natural climate solutions. But I, I didn't say we should not be investing in it. I said that tends to be like the bright, shiny object of big tech companies lately. And we need to also look at reducing and avoiding emissions today, you know, instead of relying on a far off concept that so far has not, you know, has not proven to re- remove carbon dioxide at the nearly the levels it needs to, despite massive amounts of investment. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to quibble on wording, but but I mean... I hear the words yes and, but when there's announcements, for example, on a new pool of capital that's focused on carbon removal or, or different things that are focused on carbon removal, what I don't hear from Drydown, if I'm honest, is, is yes and. What I hear is why is it going towards that when it should be going towards this? And that's why I'm, that's why I'm pushing on this is just to make sure I understand because it, it seems that like I hear the words yes and, but the actions and the body language of the organization are smaller and, and more concentrated? Well, no, I totally disagree. I mean, I think uh-huh. what you hear, at least for me, what you hear is, that's great, big corporation, but you need to rein in your own emissions today. And when we see massive investments and in like sort of like, you know, we're doing amazing investing in this technology, it's like that cannot be a substitute for reducing your emissions today. It, ca- it just can't. We cannot continue churning emissions into the atmosphere and say, but it's okay because we're making these big investments in this technology of the future. No, we don't have time for that. We need to reduce 
or avoid. And, and that may mean leaving business on the table. And that's something that these big corporations can't have not at all begun to wrestle with. It's having their cake and eating it, too, is what is like <laughs> is my perspective on it. I'm glad this is coming up because this this hits on. a. I mean, it's a tension that I don't have the answer to. I mean, I wrestle with it, but I think it's important to talk about and to understand. And, and that's that on the one hand, it's like I get the worry of, hey, if we have this shiny object carbon removal, then we're investing there. Therefore, we're getting to, quote unquote, net zero or, or working towards it. And so we can stop doing the hard work to reduce our emissions. And therefore, we don't want to let them take their eye off the ball. We want them to do the hard work to, to reduce their emissions. Yes, totally agree. The flip side, though, is that we're not reducing our emissions nearly fast enough, and we have not and may not cracked the code to do so. And in the meantime, we need some backup plans, right? And that's going to take serious capital and serious time, especially given, as critics almost gleefully point out, that the costs are not nearly competitive today, that they can't remove carbon at the scale we need to. It's like, yeah, so we better get started earlier because it sure seems like we're going to need it. And I definitely don't want this whole discussion to be about, you know, carbon removal versus emission reduction because, because they both do matter. But I do think it brings up an important tension, which is this is not instead of that. And so don't talk about that because it, it takes away from this. But at the same time, this is not working, right? And, and so ideally we would do this, but it's not working. So what do we do about that? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And you're raising a critical tension. I mean, there's actually a book called The Wizard and the Prophet by Charles, I think it's Charles Mann, that actually it like really, I mean, this was this was years ago, but it really interestingly lays out what I think is the tension here, which is like, the wizards are like, technology will save us. And the prophets are like, no, we have to stop doing stuff and reduce, you know, the human consumption, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I feel that tension. I live that tension. I work with big tech companies every day of my life. And like, I personally am, you know, feel like we need to just like, just stop at some point, stop reducing. But I totally hear you. I We absolutely need to have, I mean, the, the IPCC report, our own data shows that we need carbon removal. We need it, but we don't include it as a solution because in our framework of w whether we include what we include as a climate solution, right now we have 80 something, you know, it needs to remove a certain amount from the atmosphere. It needs to be economically viable. It needs to show a certain amount of return on investment. It doesn't. So carbon removal doesn't we include it as a coming attraction. It's not included because it doesn't yet meet our criteria, but we acknowledge that it's needed. I worry that the more crutches big companies have to rely on to not get to the actually addressing the fundamental problem, the more crutches they have, the less likely they are to actually address it. And so first it's like, oh, we that goes against yes. And just to be clear, that goes no, no, against. No, yes no, and no, it doesn't. We can they could say we can plant trees. So therefore, we can keep emitting at the same levels we've been because we're just net zero now because we're planting trees that are in 30 years going to start absorbing carbon dioxide. But they have a limit and then they're going to burn up a while. Like it's yes. And but a lot of companies are are relying on the carbon removal and not doing the work of the other side of the equation, which is reduce your emissions today, you know, even if that means leaving business on the table. Like, I worry about that being a crutch and keeping it from forcing us to do the hard work of actually figuring out how to do this in a way that that doesn't send, you know, emissions into the atmosphere. Yeah, I just get skeptical of the people that say yes and and then don't celebrate when there's carbon removal news. And, and I can turn it around, right? Like, 
I'm skeptical of consumer behavior change, right? It's like, Jimmy Carter, wear your sweater. And like, it just gives people a crutch. Like, I wear my sweater so I don't have to leave my cushy tech job and focus on climate full time because I wear my sweater. Like I, you know, I drive an EV, right? Or like my carbon footprint, like I offset all my flying, right? Or, and it's like, well, yeah, but, and it's like, well, if enough people do it, then it puts pressure on the system. It's like, but are enough people really going to do it, right? And it's it's basically, it's the same debate over again, but pointed at, at a very different thing. And, and the answer is like, Yes, we should focus on it. I have a hard time believing it's going to be viable the same way that a lot of people seem to have a hard time believing that carbon removal is going to be viable. But yes, we should focus on it. So yes, and am I personally going to focus on it? Probably not that that much in terms of like where we put our investment capital or things like that. But I'm glad to see it focused on. I feel like with carbon removal, for some reason, the people that say yes and aren't actually glad to see it focused on. They call it a distraction, which is the antithesis of, of yes and. And, and I'm just trying to reconcile the, those two things. I, I mean, yeah, I think you can say it yes and. It's, it's hypocritical. It's not. It's not hypocritical to say you very company that is investing in, in direct air capture, like this is what you're going to celebrate this year instead of actually just stopping the thing that you're doing that's contributing to the problem. It's like, how does that make any rational sense to be saying like, I'm just going to continue doing what I'm doing. That's that's horrible for the atmosphere. And I know it is, but I'm investing in some technology that someday is hopefully going to help solve this problem. Like, no, just address the so fucking the issue. In the way. So then don't say yes. And it's not yes. And that technology is in the way. It's a crutch and crutches are, are detrimental. There's a sequencing here, though. Like, it is possible to chew gum and walk at the same time, is it not? That's like, my you, point. So we're saying can... the same thing. So then it should be celebrated. Then it should be celebrated. But these companies, did these companies do anything to advocate on behalf of Build Back Better this past year? A lot of them, no. They were Some they of your were members silent. didn't. Some of your members didn't, Exactly. Right? And you know that I was, like, the first and loudest person and most critical of them and almost lost my job because of it. Like, I am not afraid to call my companies out when they don't step up. And I'm not afraid to call companies out when they invest in direct air capture and continue to be hypocritical and make the problem worse and not step up on climate policy when that climate policy would create massive amounts of investment in the in renewable energy and the things that are going to help them meet their targets. It's the companies that are being hypocritical. I'm calling it out. I mean, I don't see that how saying yes and and being, you know, and being more excited about, you know, re reduction or avoidance is hypocritical. Yeah. So I'm going to try this a different way. So put put carbon removal aside. We can say we have everything that we need, right? And we can say that things that aren't the things that we already have are a distraction. I know that's not what you're saying. You're saying you're saying yes and, right? But at the same time, <laughs> if the if the things we need aren't getting adopted, right, the things we have, I mean, aren't getting adopted, then whether they would work if they were adopted broadly or not, if they don't get adopted broadly, they aren't what we need, right? And, well, and, so, are and you, so are you so, yeah. so you're giving up? So you're saying forget about these solutions. We're just going to suck everything oh, no, out of the I'm air. In the yes and camp. I'm in the yes, yes and camp. But here's my philosophy, right? My philosophy is that the overall portfolio of spending and action that's going towards addressing climate and re-architecting our global economy is so small relative to what it needs to be that any additional dollar or any additional resource that goes into it is a win and should be celebrated. And we should focus much more on unlocking orders of magnitude more resource than we should on critiquing the resource that comes in. Like, 
it's a real allergy for me when resource comes in and inevitably the peanut gallery chimes in and says, well, I mean, I guess that's good, but it'd be better if it were devoted to that thing over there, right? Like, and that happens inevitably, no matter what it is. When the largest donation came in to fund a climate school at one of the top universities, it's like, oh, so the rich white kids are going to get, it's like, oh my God, it's like, it's like, this is an, this is like an undebatably positive thing. Like, just stop. You, you are preaching to the choir on that one. I mean, I, I feel like I can advocate for emissions reductions and avoidance now without like being the peanut gallery who's like, you know, ranting and raving about about the Doer school. I mean, I like I think you're you are uncovering a super important tension and we all feel it and we all end up, especially on social media, end up like quibbling with each other about like how change is going to happen the fastest. I don't think I mean, yes, it's it's completely unhelpful. But I, I think in my mind, you're putting Project Drawdown in a in that camp where what we're trying to do is provide scientific grounding. We're trying to say this is not just about fossil fuels, people. This is also about how we move around the world. This is also about how we heat our homes. This is also about efficiency. This is also about food. This is also about our health. Like we try to say. Yes, we need electric vehicles, but we also need regenerative agriculture and we also need silvopasture and we also need indigenous land tenure. We, like when I say yes and I mean, we're not just like down with fossil fuels. We're like, this is a much bigger issue than fossil fuels, which is how a lot of people frame it. And I guess I mean, we completely acknowledge that carbon removal is important, is an important solution, but it's not going to be the climate savior. And so we can be happy about it. We can like pat our companies on the back that were part of that, you know, of that announcement, which several of them were. And we can also say to them, but you need to move much faster on reduction and avoidance at the same time. Or this is hypocritical, right? Like we can do both of those things at the same time. We can put pressure on them to reduce emissions faster today and be, you know, be glad that they're investing in the technology that we're going to need tomorrow. To me, that's what I mean by yes and. And I think we're... I think we're pretty solidly on the on that side of things. Yeah, and I, I don't mean to make this project drawdown specific. I I think what's happening in this episode, honestly, is that there's just been some kind of pent up frustration that I've been feeling in general. And you can't even say the climate movement because because it's everything, right? It's there's so many different segments that fundamentally disagree with each other. So it's not like there's one unified movement, right? But I think what gets me is that some people and entities that have been working on it for a long time are so authoritative about preaching exactly what needs to be done in the right way and the wrong way when they have not been getting it done. And it's it's not that I'm a newcomer that comes in and think I have the answers. I don't. I know how much I don't know. But the insiders that haven't been delivering it, I'm not saying because it's their fault. Like it might timing matters and, you know, consumer perception. And there's like so many factors and symptoms becoming more visible. And there's so many factors that are that are outside of their control. Like it's not about blame, but it's that how can you be so authoritative about what you know works when when it hasn't been working, when new people are coming with different approaches? And you can say so confidently that's the wrong approach when your approach hasn't been working. Like that's the piece I think that just, and I'm sure it bothers them as much that the new people come in and speak so authoritatively like I do sometimes. But like, I try to catch myself honestly because I don't know. But what I do know is, and this is just back to like a core philosophical belief and a worldview, is that more shots on goal is better. More experimentation is better. More like 
controversial experiments is better. We're going to learn so much. Like we should just be trying different things. We should be putting different skill sets at it. We should check our preconceived notions at the door. And I feel like that's a really hard, you, like you can't teach an old dog new tricks. You are so right. I mean, I really could not agree more with what you're saying. I really, I mean, and I, I feel that tension. I feel a similar agitation when people get so attached to their one approach and everything else is wrong. And I, I completely agree with you. I really honestly do. I, I think we need, yeah, I think we need, we need more of all of it. And that's going to lead to more learning. So then let's talk about that. So we've talked about how maybe the people in power aren't the people that are going to take us there. We've talked about, even if you look at the incumbent corporations, like you said, you wrestle with whether they can take us there, whether capitalism in general can take us there. What does that mean about the legacy climate community? The legacy climate community. The climate community that's been working on this problem for decades, the organizations that are so steeped in their ways. Are they the ones, like they shit on the incumbents all day long and say the incumbents are toast and we need a new set. Like, why isn't the same thing true in climate? Interesting. I mean, I think of it as, now as sort of the incumbents as the moderate flank now, and then this like a radical flank that's coming in. And and the way f- these flanks, the way these flanks works is like you have, and I think of like, I came from the organization series, which is an incredible organization that is a nonprofit, works with companies and investors. And Mindy and came doing- on the show. And Barney Schauble came on the show. And Alicia Seiger came on <gasps> the show. Amazing. So, all yeah. <laughs> huge fans of all of them. Mindy is like the baddest ass person in the universe, in my opinion. So is Alicia. So is, I mean, they all are. But I came from series and, you know, and establishing Drawdown Labs was like, I sort of felt like the way that that we publicly hold our companies accountable. So series has to play a real, I mean, they play a super, super important and deep role in the ecosystem. They work deeply, deeply with, as you know, with inside and have and have maximum amounts of trust by these companies and investors that they work with and policymakers. We, Drawdown Labs, are taking a different approach where I'm not afraid to call out our company partners when they don't step up. I'm not afraid to like, you know, talk to the press about ways that I am or I'm not, you know, disappointed in 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 the leadership being displayed by my company partners. That's something that series can't do because they work deeply in the system. They need the trust and credibility of their of their partners. So I see myself a little bit as like a flank that's trying to like give cover to help companies like maybe feel a little bit agitated or threatened by by what we're doing. And so therefore, maybe they'll work more with they'll like go and do more advocacy or move faster with series. Like I see it as like a moderate flank and a radical flank. And we need the radical flank on the fringe to help accelerate, maybe ruffle a few feathers, try to move things faster. So that way, like it'll slowly move the whole ecosystem forward is sort of like sort of my theory of change. So I don't I guess I don't think of it as like, I mean, and series is a huge income but they're also really agile and really, you know, and really having like deep, deep work in the system. But yeah, I don't know if I don't know if that answers your question. Well, if that's what you well, were getting at. It, so in, in that example, if you're playing the role of the more radical, that's going to hold the company's feet to the fire. Why would the companies work with you then? What's in it for them? Well, so what is in it for them? I mean, if I hold them accountable to the press, in the press, which I did last year in a pretty public way. I saw. It would look really bad if they decided to leave my coalition, right? Like, But why do they come in the first place? Knowing, knowing that, that Drawdown Labs has that reputation and that history, wouldn't that make new members reticent to sign on? Because once they're in, then they're trapped. We're about to announce five new major corporate partners in the next month who came to me right after that piece was released, this like 
investigative, I don't know what to call it, like a expose, I guess, who came to me and said, we want that kind of accountability and transparency, sign us up. So we're bringing five new, like three companies in the tech sector and two in other sectors who were like, we need this. This is the kind of like transparency and accountability we need. So sign us up. We lost the partner because of it. And that sucks. But I get it. Like it caused some issues internally for some people. And I get that. But I think we do need I think, you know, look, there's zero teeth in this space. There's zero. There's there's so few things we have to hold for any accountability, right? Like, what do we have to hold companies' feet to the fire? What metrics do we even have in place to measure progress here? Like, we're very limited, right, in how much accountability there is in this space. And when I say this space, I mean, like, companies and and climate progress. So I think we need to take it where we can find it, right? Like, and so if that's, you know, like, looking at how climate policy and whether companies are advocating on behalf of climate policy or not, like... I'll take it, you know, I'll take that accountability where I can find it. I think there was a there was an appreciation by a lot of people that, look, that's a very like a very murky sort of obscure space where no one knows. No one knows like how it all works inside the company, how these conversations worked. And I think shining a light there is helpful, in my opinion, even if it even if it ruffles a few feathers. And. I don't know if I can ask you this question, given that you do have a bunch of big corporate clients, but I mean, when you envision the future of capitalism, well, since we don't have time to tear down the system, as you said, so we'll try to change what we've got. I mean, if you look at, call it the Fortune 100 or Global 2000 or or whatever, what percentage of what percentage of the companies that are in there now will be in there in our future state when we're, you know, in harmony with the planet and with each other, if we get there? Great question. If I'm being completely honest in a not necessarily realistic, but honest as to what I think needs to happen, we need to take a hard look at what kinds of companies should exist in a world that that, you know, that we need to build. Like, do we have the ability to have like these massive retail chains that just sell crap in the world? Of course, like fossil fuel companies need to transform or stop existing. But what kinds of companies should exist? Should it be only companies that are scaling climate solutions or a health or well-being, you know, some sort of human right or human, you know, some something like an essential need of humanity or a climate solution? Are those the only kinds of companies that will be able to exist in the world? Like, I don't know, but nobody's doing the hard work of thinking about that, right? Like right now, you could have a business focused on anything to make money producing anything at all in the world that you want. I don't think we have the carbon budget for that anymore. Like we need to both like we have so many like companies that need to reduce their emissions yet. Like we I don't know if I'm making this point well, but like I think nobody's looking at the kinds of companies that should exist in the world, the kinds of business models that we can afford to have in the world. And I think a lot of them are going to exist because they pivot to focus on climate solutions full stop. That's my opinion. How many of those in the Fortune 100 are going to do that? I don't know. I mean, you see like big autos who transition there, who are going to, you know, who say phasing out internal combustion engines, we're going to be 100 percent EV by 2040 or 2030. Like that's what that looks like. It's like saying the future is not in my business model of the past. So we're pivoting to the business model of the future. How many companies are going to do that? I don't know. But I think that's the that's the way forward. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's something that I that I I struggle with too because it's like, well, 
How do the companies change? Well, the voluntary market can only take us so far, so they're going to need to get regulated. Well, how does regulation happen? Well, it gets passed. Well, how does it get passed? Well, the companies advocate for it. Well, why would the companies advocate for it if it's against their self, you know, their short-term self-interest? Well, they won't unless they get pressure from their employees. Well, how do they get pressure from their employees? Right. So it's like it's like well, the employees need to care. Well, how do the what makes the employees care? Right. And then it's like nothing you do is enough. Like if I do my own carbon footprint, it, well, here's something. It's like when companies try to do the right thing with their own stuff. You have people like Climate Voice saying, well, that's all well and good, but if you're not pushing on policy, right, then like it's not enough, right? Well, it's like, well, then how come there's so much focus on like me and my EV? Isn't it just like me showing up at the polls, right? Like why does my own personal carbon footprint matter if the company's carbon footprint doesn't matter, right? So it's a lot to sort through and it doesn't help that all these experts disagree with each other. And now that I've talked to hundreds of experts, I can tell you that there's smart, credible people on both sides of almost every issue. So like makes sense to that what you will. But when people come down and say, well, how can you even think that that's crazy? It's like, well, that credible person over there says me, told me the exact same thing about what you think. I hear you. I really hear you. It's so stressful. It's a, <laughs> I'm stressed out just have this conversation. It's like, it, there's so much tension built up and it's like, look, we're working toward like the future of life on earth. Like that's, that's what's at stake. Like, of course, of course there's of course, it's like, you know, like we all feel such urgency and like and we all want to feel like we are part of the solution. Right. And so we all get like super attached to our solution because that's how we're going to leave our leg. Or, you know, I just think there's like an element of of ego that everybody brings into this, too. Right. Like policy is the most important thing. No, investment is the most important thing. No, it's EVs. No, it, you know, I mean, let's like I think we all bring into this our own our own stuff, which like, well, of course. And the, and the thing that gets Earth. me, the thing that gets me is that the, it's like the very same organizations that call out like, well, that corporation and their incentives and the incentive structures are all whack. And then they bash some technology and then the camera stops and they're like, well, I have to do that because otherwise my donors would pull out. Right. And it's like, oh, oh man, it's like, <laughs> we're <laughs> fucked. <laughs> sorry. Oh, sorry. You can swear. You know, I, 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 I checked a little explicit box. So oh, thank yeah, you. usually these episodes are pretty kind of like, like, you know, monotone and, and conversational. <laughs> this one is is uh, has got some energy to it, which, which is a good thing. So yeah. we're screaming at each other. I love it. <laughs> I, I feel like we need to like meet up over drinks, and, like <laughs> smash beer bottles and stuff. <laughs> well, stepping outside of your Drawdown Labs hat, Jamie, as someone that's worked on this issue from different perspectives for a long time, and just systems problems in general, since global health from the cheap seeds seems to have a lot of parallels to climate change in terms of the systems nature of it and the complexity of how to address it. But what are the big clogged arteries or blocks to the system that stand out to you? And if you could wave a magic wand and, and do something to address one or several of them, what would you change and how would you change it? Wow. Oh, this is such a good question. I didn't make it up on the spot. I've I've recycled that one a bunch. Dang. I should have <laughs> I should have been ready for this one. <laughs> if I could wave a magic wand. So I mean, I think last week was a soup I think there was a big artery unclogged, which is the Defense Production Act being invoked for, you know, for like heat pumps and then solar like I think that sort of like power is really important to be able to like give corporations the incentive and the you know to beef up their manufacturing 
So that was a big one. I think the more that we we see things like that, executive orders like that, I'm very excited about like the employee organizing labor movements being strengthened. I think that's really good. A few weeks ago, Microsoft came out with principles around the, the, the CEO of Microsoft put out this blog post around like we support employees in, you know, if they want to if they want to unionize we support them. We're not going to make it difficult for them. We think that's important. We're going to listen to our employees, no matter what their concerns are, if it's climate change or, you know, human rights related. So I think that was a big deal, like a big leading company coming out and saying, you know, we're supportive of employee power building, essentially. I think that's that's going to set an important precedent for other employees, especially in the tech sector, to organize and try to figure out how they can help their companies move faster. I think that's important. And I do think, I mean, there are things. There are like aggregated ways that I'm excited about companies coming together and and bringing their voices together to be heard. Like we're working with some companies now on on like pushing their landlords. So like when when companies are renting space around like like I, this is this is one example, but it's indicative of a broader leverage point, I think, which is companies coming together and saying, we're going to push our insurance companies or the landlords where we rent space to say, we're going to stop our lease with you within five years if you don't make, you know, if you don't completely retrofit this building. Companies using their clout in those ways, looking at their corporate cat, the, the cash that they have on hand, like what that money is doing in the world and and figuring out ways to shift it or pressuring, you know, companies coming together and pressuring like big asset managers to say, decarbonize, you know, get your money out of fossil fuels by X date, or else we're going to pull our money and go somewhere else. To me, those are really important and exciting clogs in the arteries that if and when those are actually cleared will be really big. And those kinds of conversations are really building steam right now. Well, Jamie, you've been such a good sport. We can't wrap up without first asking you from a Drawdown Labs standpoint, for anyone listening that's inspired by the work that you do, what kinds of people do you want to hear from and how can we at MCJ or the listeners to the show be helpful to you? Ooh, well, we are super excited about connecting with employees across job functions like human resources or accounting or legal or marketing who are like, wanting to make climate into their jobs. And we're really trying to like figure out strategic and very tactical like OKRs around how to integrate climate stuff into different job functions. So I'd love to, you know, if there are people who want to like pilot some things that we're working on now inside their companies, that would be super exciting or just feedback around, you know, anyone who works inside a company who's like trying to move things faster, would love to just connect. And that's your whole community. Yeah, we're just so thrilled to be part of this community. And thank you for providing this space. Of course. Well, thanks for being such an active contributor. And is there anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words? Oof, no, that was probably the liveliest <laughs> podcast conversation I've had. And it really feels like that was really important to like grapple through it and struggle with it because we all experience it. And I think it's like, it felt good. It felt like cathartic to grapple with it with you, Jason. <laughs> well, I told you before the show started that the best episodes we don't think of like episodes. We just think of it like a coffee discussion that we should have had a long time ago anyways, and that listeners just happen to be at the next table over eavesdropping. And for better or for worse, we definitely gave them that today. <laughs> <laughs> we did. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think we did. I would love to do it in person sometime. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Jamie, thanks so much. And again, you were a great sport. I really enjoyed the discussion and I look forward to being in the trenches with you going forwards. I, I'm really inspired by your passion and your work and your expertise. And I hope to do great things with you to help accelerate the transition. So thank you. Likewise, Jason. Thank you. See you in the trenches. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.